0: Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this afternoon and the blessing and the privilege it is to be together with one another um, and with you. um, Becoming aware of your presence here in this space, in this beautiful grove, um, outdoors. Hearing the loud chatter of our kiddos behind their masks and reminding us of your presence and your footsteps in this place. We bless you, Lord, for all of the breath and the wind that flows through here, through the power of your Holy Spirit, and ask right now that you would bind us closer together as you bind us closer to you, that we would become one as you prayed in the garden in John, and that we would truly seek your face and try to become more like you as we study your text and worship you together. We bless you for this privilege to be here, whether online or in person, to gather together for every single name represented, for those that are near, for those that are far, for those who are in need of healing, for those who are in need of spiritual and emotional healing. We bless you for everyone here, every single name, mentioned in our hearts and in our presence and our minds right now, Lord. We bless you for it, and thank you as we come and seek to worship you through the study of your word. We ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, we're going to jump right into Luke chapter 22. So here we go. We're going to be reading from the NRSV, because why not? And we're going to start and stop, as is my custom, if anybody wants to jump on in. Now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. So I'll just stop right now. Okay. So remember that the Festival of Unleavened Bread or the Passover is an eight-day celebration in commemoration of the exodus from Egypt in celebration. And it's more than just here in the Gospel of Luke, a temporal or calendar time marker. It's going to frame our entire passion narrative against the themes of oppression, justice, and freedom, not just in terms of slavery, but also from the freedom of sin and death, which is what Jesus is going to be walking us through here. It's going to turn this myself for one second so I can see it a bit better. Okay. Now, um, just before Jesus's time, they didn't have trains in Jesus's day, but um, just before Jesus's time um, for the festival, if you'll read your calendar, the festival of unleavened bread sort of started then the eighth day or the festival of Passover started then the eighth day celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, remembering the Exodus, and when we wandered in the wilderness after God got us out of Egypt in that oppressive time. But just about Jesus' time and a little bit later, those two terms, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover and Pesach, start to just get smooshed together. And whenever we say Passover or Pesach, or you read that in your text, it's really talking about all of it at once. And it's a long festival and feast. And I think I preached a couple weeks ago that when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem with all of the pilgrims that would have been coming into Jerusalem for this festival and feast, when he's coming in, he's entering in on lamb selection day. Because every household in Israel was commanded to select a lamb and then that lamb would live with them for the week. So you get to your kids, get to know the lamb, they name the lamb, they think the lamb's super cute, and then after that attachment happens, you take the lamb to the temple to offer it up as your Passover sacrifice. So, Jesus has entered in on lamb selection day, and all of the pilgrims are there crushing into Jerusalem. The reason why is because the there are pilgrimage feasts in the book of of Leviticus, and in the book of Exodus that are listed out for us in Deuteronomy, that talk about when do you have to go to Jerusalem, the place where God will put his name, the word Jerusalem doesn't occur yet at that spot, where God puts his name, when do you have to go there, and the festival of unleavened bread, Passover, is one of the times where you're commanded to be in Jerusalem. You can't keep the holiday anywhere else, you have to be there for that one. The others are Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, and then also Shavuot, uh, Pentecost, which will be coming up in our narrative story in the book of Acts. So now the festival of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. The chief priests and scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death, for they were afraid of the people. So they're trying to figure out how do we prevent this guy from starting to lead the rebellion that we're afraid he's going to lead. So let's try to figure out how we can get rid of him. What can we do to get this guy out of here? So now the last supper narrative we're going to start to read is going to be framed by this plot. Um, Sorry, Yes. Can somebody turn the, make sure there's no water on back there. I thought I was afraid. Great. Thank you. Don't flood the playground. Okay. The Last Supper is framed by the plot to betray Jesus. The narrative in Luke has covered years and months so far. Like as we opened up in Luke chapter one, we covered years up to when he was 12 and those types of things. And then we covered some months, but now the narrative's going to slow from day to day and then to hour to hour and almost like moment by moment. Our narrative slows down entirely against this framework of Passover, unleavened bread and the plot to have Jesus killed. Verse three. Now Satan entered into Judas, called Ishkariot, who was one of the 12. And I know you all have like a thousand questions right now, don't you? Right? How did that happen? He's one of the 12. How did Satan get to go into him? Did he invite him out? Did he put a welcome back out? What happened here? So let's just stop for a moment. Um, at the conclusion of the temptation narrative way back at the beginning of luke when jesus himself is tempted by the accuser by satan um, it mentions at the end that luke says that satan is going to depart until the, an opportune or an appointed time in greek kairos so given that it kind of sounds as though luke's comments about jerusalem so far means that satan has never left he's been just hanging out there waiting for this opportune time and so here we go We don't know whether or not Judas is possessed, as in he does not have any free will, or if he has done something that has already made his heart a home and a fertile ground for Satan. We don't know any of that. The text doesn't tell us. This is all that it says. So it's up to our imagination to ask questions about it, not to come to any specific conclusion, okay? We don't know exactly what's happening. But we do know that in verse 31 following in this chapter that Peter, Jesus is going to talk to Peter and say, Hey, Satan has been trying to sift you out like wheat from chaff and also the others, but you can resist that. And Jesus has already modeled for the disciples, for the apostles, how to resist it through the temptation narrative that we have earlier on in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus himself is tempted. So even though we might say maybe like it says Satan entered into him, we don't actually believe, I don't believe that there was no free will on Judas's part. seems like Judas is a willing partner for what's to come next. Um, Also his name, Judas, is coming from like Judea. So it could be just a man from Judea. Ish can mean man in Hebrew and Kiryat could be a village in Judea. So it could just be because there's lots of Judases judah or judas the man from the village right so just it's iscario iscariot is not his last name i think i was always confused about that and of course the other disciples named and the other people in jesus crowd named judas after this are pretty probably really no no but not that guy from that place like they want to be clear where they're from So Satan enters into Judas called Iscariot, who's one of the 12. He went away and conferred then with the chief priests and the officers of the temple police about how he might betray Jesus to them. They were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray him and to when when there was no crowd present. So they want to find the moment to do it when they can't get a big response from the crowd, which is again what they would be expecting, a crowd to sort of rally forth and try to protect Jesus. Uh, Luke's gospel account doesn't tell us that it's 30 pieces of silver. We find out that from other gospel accounts. And there's nothing to indicate up until this moment that Judas is the guy to do this. I think it's in the gospel account of John. They're like, and he was like a thief and he was looking out for the treasury and the money. But Luke doesn't have any of that indication. So at this point now in our narrative, all forces, human and supernatural, are converging against Jesus and driving the narrative to the cross. Chief priests, leaders, Satan, Judas, Herod Antipas and Pilate, who will be showing up in the narrative shortly, Rome as an entity, and even Jesus' own followers will abandon him. So all of these moments, all of these powers are starting to converge to this moment. Verse seven, then the day came, the day of unleavened bread, which on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover meal for us that we may eat it. They asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for it? Listen, he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house. He enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room, kataluma in Greek, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? All right. Just so you know, all of the deci- all, like all of religious Israel is showing up in Jerusalem. So if you don't have a room to keep the Passover, you're in deep trouble. Like you're, there's no like there's literally no room in the inn kind of thing. There's no room in Jerusalem for anyone to be there. Now of interest here is this is the next time Luke's going to use that word Cataluma, which he used last for the birth narrative of Jesus. When it says that there was no room for them, which is often translated in the inn, it's actually guest room or spare room, Cataluma, And Luke's gonna use it again here. So Jesus asks them to prepare the guest room for him and his disciples to go and have the Passover in. And it's just a nice, interesting bookend that Luke's doing for us, because at the very beginning of our narrative of Jesus, we see that Jesus is, there's no room for him in the guest room. So he is born in the manger and place where the animals are. And now we have at the end, that bread of life, the water, the living water that was placed in that sort of feeding trough. They had stone feeding troughs, mangers, there in Jerusalem and in the outskirts of the areas in Galilee. That place, the bread of the world, is now going to become the bread of the world also in the guest room. So these have a nice little fun Luke flip. Verse 12. He will show you a large room upstairs, already furnished, make preparations for us there. So they went and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it probably didn't look like, okay, everybody get on this side of the table while we go and take a picture. Right, and then come back again. So instead, we have here that beautiful image of a triclinium, which is a three-sided table that was common um, in Jesus's day and in the Greco-Roman world, where you would recline, and the servers would come into the table like this and provide. And different groups of disciples here in this setting, or different groups of guests around the table, would all be able to dip from the same bread basket, dip into the same dishes together, and somebody could continue to serve. So somewhere around in that kind of setting. We also don't know, in spite of all of our art, there probably were women present too. It doesn't say that they weren't there. I can't imagine that the women would not have been invited to the Passover meal, which is under religious obligation for everybody to keep. Verse 14. When the hour came, he took his place, Jesus, at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread be the flatbread for Passover for matzah. And when when he had it given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same thing with the cup after supper saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. But see, verse 21, the one who betrays me is with me and his hand is on the table for the son of man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. And then they began to ask one another, which of them it could be who would do this. Like they have no idea. So let's talk really briefly about the role of table fellowship in the gospel of Luke. Uh, many of our teaching team and pastors have been talking about table fellowship. I think Tom and Sidney talked about it when they were talking about Luke chapter 15 um, and talking about that role in the parable of lost things. We've talked about it. I'm sure I'm sure Omer has also spoken of it recently. Um, and so in the gospel of Luke, we have table fellowship being mentioned on a regular basis from sort of the beginning and to the end in a whole bunch of different ways. So every meal thus far that Luke's covered is starting to converge in this moment. For every reference of bread and sustenance converge in this context of the Last Supper. So start to think now of the open table fellowship Jesus has had with sinners, with tax collectors, with Pharisees, with lawyers. Think of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, all of the things the disciples have learned and seen, all of the many meals where they've sat with Jesus as he led the blessings at the beginning and the end of the meal, right? Uh, The prayer for daily bread that we all prayed here at the very beginning, the role of the meal as a place for reconciliation between sinners, with the woman who anoints Jesus, with Zacchaeus, with the lost sons in that story. The post-resurrection accounts that are going to be coming in the gospel of Luke have meals at the center of them, recognizing Jesus in the context of that meal. And then, of course, Passover and ultimately the heavenly banquet. All of those things are converging in this meal moment with Jesus and his disciples. All of those fellowship roles. And I would add, all of the other contexts that we have for hospitality and a place about having a meal with God, including up on Mount Sinai with Moses and the leaders and God, God's self in that revelation. All of those moments coming to table fellowship. Uh, even today in the Middle East, there is a reconciliation meal that can happen when something's been broken down between people. Um, recently, There was a terrible car accident in the Galilee and somebody was killed. Somebody's child was killed. And so the two leaders of the two households came together. The fathers of that one driving the car and the fathers of the one that was killed. And they had a a reconciliation, solchan feast, a fellowship meal to come together again. So the meal carries this incredible power to it, doesn't it? And we know that. We share the table together every week, but we also had tacos last week. We do our best to continue to have table fellowship together because something special happens in these intimate moments. And it's in this moment that Jesus says, one of you here is betraying me. This betrayer is here in our midst. So the disciples respond to this as you'd expect, of which the betrayer is one of the disciples, right? Right. A dispute arises, so first of all, they can't figure out, sorry, go back. They can't figure out who is there. They begin to ask one another, which of them could this be and who could it be? They don't know. And so then they start to argue instead about who's greater. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. I just want to say that I would hope that if we were in a context where somebody said, somebody here in this room is going to betray us that that person would not be the first person to be like, let's talk about who's greatest or that all of the rest of us might think, well, is it me? Could it be me? Maybe I won't talk about my ego right now and why I want to be in charge. But they started to argue about who is going to be greatest. And Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the one who serves for who is greater who is greater the one who is at the table or the one who serves is it not the one at the table but I am among you as one who serves so Jesus takes this moment to say yes one of you is going to betray me but by the way we're not going to have this conversation about who's greater we're not going to have the debate that's been happening in the rest of the world we're going to make a different we're not even just going to flip it on the head we're going to ditch that system entirely and we're going to try to pursue a system where we serve one another and where Jesus is ultimately going to lay down his life. Now, for the sake of brevity, we're going to skip forward from verse 27 all the way to verse 47, so we can continue to follow this narrative with Judas. But please go back and read, because there's a lot that happens in this next bit, including the... Time when Jesus is going to tell Peter that he's going to deny him, and Peter's like, No, no, I'll never do that. And fast forward like three hours, he's denied him. And then he talks to them about a purse and a bag and a sword, which is also quite interesting. And then Jesus will go to the Mount of Olives where he will go and pray. And it's likely that the disciples are staying in one of the caves on the Mount of Olives that would have been used for olive production, but not during this time of the year. The olives aren't being harvested yet. And so a lot of times, pilgrims coming to the area would rent out a cave. A little wonderful, nice, cool spot to be able to stay there for the Passover festival and continue to make those nice trips, daily trips to the temple. Jesus is there in the Mount of Olives. He's been praying. The disciples are sleeping because they had a lot of wine at the Passover meal. And now the betrayal and the rest of Jesus comes. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12. Luke's always very keen to point out that Luke, that Judas is one of the group right? One of the 12 was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the son of man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, like enough enough of this. And he touched the ear, healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple police and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were abandoned? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. And that's where we'll end our reading for right now. So the title of our talk today is Betrayed with a Kiss. Now in this particular narrative, I don't know if you noticed, Luke doesn't actually say that the kiss happened. He like goes in to kiss Jesus and she's Jesus like, Hey, wait, are you actually going to betray me with a kiss? And we don't know if that's the completed act, but we should note that Jesus doesn't actually need anybody to betray him or defend him. This has been the plan all along. If Jesus they, first of all, these folks could find him. They knew where they were, where he was staying. And if he wanted to flee, he could have just hopped right over that edge of the Mount of Olives down into the desert and be gone because that's what King David did. And that's what other deposed kings of Jerusalem had done. You just go right over the edge. And for those of you who've been with us on the Mount of Olives, you can know how quickly somebody could just leave and not be found in any way. If Jesus wanted to run, he could run. He doesn't need anybody to betray him to do this work. But Judas has participated in this moment. He could have easily done all of that, but instead he really chooses to be there and hand himself over and he offers himself up. Now, I think when we read these stories about Judas, our primary, my primary reaction is, yeah, but I'm no Judas. So I would not have been, I'm going to read myself into the story of one of the disciples. I'm going to decide that I'm one of the ones around the table that would totally, maybe not have gotten it. Now I think we're going to have a battle. But then Jesus says, no, actually, it's not by force. Enough of that. Maybe not. But it's easy for us to just go, but I would never be the one to betray Jesus that much. But Luke is keen to constantly tell us that Judas was one of the 12. And as a result of how Luke paints this, we see that Judas serves as a warning that our enemies may be right in our inner circle and that even we, and might be among the inner circle and that we might be among those that might be counted as an enemy against Christ. Because what's amazing here in this moment is that we don't know, Je- Jesus has clearly not treated Judas any differently and Judas has not behaved differently. This great uh, theologian, Fred Craddock, says in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke that Luke has spoken two very strong words to the church. First, the betrayal of Christ has occurred and can again occur among any who partake of the Lord's Supper. Judas partakes of the Lord's Supper and still chooses betrayal of Jesus. The betrayal lies within the circle of the covenant, and hence it's a continuing warning for the church. Second, by placing the the dispute about greatness at the Lord's table right in this moment, Luke again changes an ugly moment in history of the 12 into a very real and present exhortation to those who share the table. Love and place of power was a problem for the first followers of Jesus to be sure, but it continues to be so today. It's an infectious disease among so many who lead Christ's church. Luke will not allow us simply to scold the ambitious apostles or Judas, I would say, every time we sit at this Lord's table, these words of humility and service return as a reminder and a warning. Because I think we can all fall into these traps. I think Judas, one theory is that he knows that he wants to force Jesus's hand into trying to start this military revolution. And there's other gospel accounts you can read about this, and maybe there's some nuance there, that Judas is sitting there thinking he's actually doing the will of the Lord, that he's doing what Jesus wants him to do. Go and do it what you've planned to do, right? That Judas goes and does that. And in the other gospel accounts, we see that after this moment, Judas feels some remorse after Jesus has been arrested. And he says, I've betrayed an innocent man. And he tries to give the money back and then ultimately takes his own life. But the gospel account of Luke does not say that. In the beginning of Acts, it says that with that money, Judas bought a field, and then he tripped and he fell in the field and his guts spilled out on it. He doesn't paint Judas with a lot of remorse. We don't see in the Gospel of Luke that narrative of being so remorseful that he's taken his own life. But maybe, maybe Judas thought he was doing exactly what Jesus wanted him to do. Maybe Judas thought... I'm going to push the issue and I'm going to get them to arrest him. And then Jesus will fight back and we'll get the revolution that we want. He cleansed the temple for Pete's sake. Maybe that's what's going to happen. Or maybe the trap is that we can all look and say, but I'm not Judas. But then we're the ones arguing about who's the best, which church is the best, who's got the right theology, who follows Jesus better than others, who's figured out how to do it in these days, all of those things. Or we point fingers more easily at the others in our circle or just outside of our circles and say, well, they're the problem. They're the ones who are really betraying the way of Jesus. They're the ones who don't get it. They're the ones who've sold themselves out for silver. They're the ones who've bound themselves up to nationalism. They're the ones who've done all of those things. Wherever we sit in all of that, I think the thing that constantly amazes me is that neither Jesus nor Judas are doing anything that sort of lays out what's happening next. The disciples have to guess who it might be. So Jesus has not been treating Judas, who he picked from the very beginning, any differently than he's treated any other disciple that would cause them to think, oh, maybe that's the one that is going to do this. And Judas has been able to play the game so well this whole time that he hasn't behaved any differently that would cause another disciple to think, yeah, it's probably Judas. Jesus has been able to live in a space and lead and teach in a space where the betrayer amongst him is able to sit at his table and drink of the cup and eat of the bread right alongside everybody else. And nobody understands or knows what's going to happen. Now we as the reader, we know, right? We know this is going to happen. First of all, like being a Judas is like commonplace discussion in our, in our community today, like in our national conversations, right? But Jesus has done nothing to reveal reveal the identity of the betrayer. And my question for us then today is, are we able to share space at the table with people we perceive as our own enemies or the people we perceive as the enemies of Christ himself? Are we able to pray for our enemies as Christ has taught us? Are we able to love them and are we willing to serve them? Are we able to follow Jesus's example in his relationship with Judas? Amy Jill Levine puts four questions together about Judas specifically. Now, in the Passover Seder, modernly, there's four questions that are asked by the youngest, by different children at the Seder. And one of the questions is, why is this night different from any other night? And so her question is, how is Judas different from any of the other apostles? And here are the questions that she asks. Do we need scapegoats? Do we live in such a way that our faith or our understanding of who we are and our place in this world only works when we have identified a scapegoat? And do we always need to make sure that someone is worse than us? Is that how we're operating in this world? It does feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? Are we always trying to find the person or persons or group or administration or political party or the unvaccinated or the vaccinated or the CDC or, the, or, or all of the things, right? The climate deniers, the people fighting for the environment. Are we always going to find a scapegoat? And do we always need to position ourselves against another or position our faith and our God against another teaching in order to show that we're better? Is it in our nature to condemn without knowing the whole story? Are we willing to fill in the gaps with the most lurid details we can imagine possible so as the time passes, the presumed guilt becomes worse and worse, extending from an individual to a group? Are we willing to think of the murderer, the betrayer, the robber, the thief, the ex-spouse, the estranged child, the leader, the coworker, the boss, in terms only of their worst behavior, their crime, rather than as individuals with their own stories, their own families, their own hurts, made in the image and likeness of God? Do we judge others only by the worst things they've done? Or are we willing to invite them to the table? Can we find compassion for Judas? Should we? And how do we practice compassion for those who've hurt or betrayed us? Or, and sometimes this is harder, if they've hurt somebody we love. Are we able to practice that kind of compassion and have relationship in this? Now, I recognize that these questions push on all of our healthy boundary debates. So I'm not suggesting that anybody enter back into abusive or difficult relationships by virtue of these questions. I just think they're good questions to ask. And they're questions we can wrestle with because it's clear that as Jesus has asked us to pray for our enemies, to pray for those who abuse us in Luke chapter six, to pray for those who heap insults against us, that Jesus himself has prayed for his disciples, has done that same thing, has modeled this for us. Back to Fred Craddock's commentary on Luke, he says that the church is at its best when it stops asking why did Jesus do it and instead examines its own record of discipleship. And I like that framing in question. Maybe we don't really need to know or be concerned with why Judas did it. It's true from the beginning of the story that we see that all of the the pressures at the beginning of this chapter are showing that this is what's going to happen. The entire narrative has turned towards the cross. And we as Christians would say that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is that which liberates us, which brings us freedom, which brings us complete freedom from sin and death. So we needed this to happen. Jesus's sacrifice, Jesus's blood brings us that freedom. May his blood be on all of us. It brings freedom from sin and death. Maybe the question isn't, why did did Judas do it? But the question just simply is, what's our own record of discipleship? Are we amongst those at the table who point fingers, who try to divide over who's great, who might be taking the covenantal meal, but still finding a way to betray? Or are we going to be those who continue to wrestle with the way of Jesus and try to seek and find ways in which to do the hard things? I'm not suggesting this is as at all easy. And I'm sure if we all sat down and we had conversation, we could find ways in which Here at this space, in our workspaces and other places, we've been hurt or harmed by people we've held close in our own households, in our own communities. But I will say that in my own experience, and I hope this has been yours too, that practicing the way of Jesus, which by the way is so hard to do, but practicing the way of Jesus does do violence to violence. Does that make sense? It It disrupts All of these systems that would cause violence, that would cause a reaction, that would cause about who's great. That instead it would say, okay, the way of Jesus, this way of love, this way of peace, the way of pursuing reconciliation with our enemies, of not othering others, of not scapegoating others, of recognizing our own place in the story and our own part that we play. That when we do that, we disrupt the whole system of violence. We disrupt the whole system of getting back at one another. We disrupt the whole system of sin and instead of following that way of Jesus, leaning into the death, burial, and resurrection, the curse reversing death of Jesus, we get to see some reconciliation and love flow through, flow through instead. We get to see healing happen instead. I, um, years ago, had a conflict with somebody and I couldn't figure out what this conflict, how it started. I didn't know why she didn't like me. She, I just felt like she didn't like me from the very beginning. And I I don't do very well with that, so I really wanted her to like me. So then I started my like campaign of trying to, um, you know, like butter her up. So she kind of held the keys to all of the things that I needed in the space I was working in. So if she didn't like you, your life was pretty difficult. So I would bring her cupcakes or like pastries and like, oh, you're doing such a great job and thank you so much. But I'll be honest, I was not sincere one time. <laughs> I was just trying to make it work better for me, right? And I think she could probably tell because nothing changed. She just constantly made it difficult. And it wasn't only me, there were others, but it was hard for a long time. And I started thinking about this teaching of Jesus about praying for your enemies and I thought, that's kind of hard, but I don't want Jesus to judge me as harshly. And so I'll just, as I'm judging her, and there are all those verses, you know the verses that make you feel bad about all the thoughts that you're having in your head about this person. So I started praying blessings upon her, like very specific blessings. Just like, God, please bless her. She was having a hard life, like just pray all these things. And her attitude started to change. Miraculously, I mean, I was still trying very hard to just get her good graces by every any means necessary, but when I started praying for her, something in me shifted and changed. Right? I started practicing compassion for her. I started asking these questions: Is she more than this moment? More than that grumpy act? What's going on that might be difficult for her? And that compassion, supernaturally through the power of Jesus, honestly through the power of Spirit, like started to open up a relationship between us. And it was shocking to me. I was shocked. And I think I had always thought I need to pray for her so and not judge her so harshly so that God doesn't judge me so harshly. But then I started thinking maybe the reason why she's judging me harshly is because honestly, even though I was faking it, and I thought I was pretty good at it, I was judging her very harshly. And things started to shift. It didn't shift for everybody on staff. Other people were still getting yelled at, just blown hair back like every time I asked for a pencil. But between she and I, things shifted somehow. No conversation happened. Nothing happened. We didn't like have a, a big reconciliation meal. I wish we had. We just never did. It just started to shift. She ended up becoming my biggest advocate and ended up asking things for me in every stage. I just think that the way of Jesus works. It's not easy. There have been very difficult circumstances in my life where people who have harmed me significantly have sat there, and I have wanted them to get into trouble, right? I wanted that justice moment, but this teaching about loving enemies from Jesus and watching Jesus live and lead in such a way with Judas in his midst has been so convicting to me, and it really sets Jesus apart from any of the other teachings we can find in his time period. A command to love enemies this way is quite unusual, And this command has changed how I try to live into that. Now, I am not good at it and I need help every single day and I don't like doing it. But when we've been in those situations where it's been so hard and if in that moment I'm able to soften and if in that moment I'm able to start practicing compassion and think about how I would want to be treated if I was acting in such a hurtful or difficult way, in those moments I've started to see something shift and change. And those have been beautiful breakthrough moments where the people most difficult around me have ended up coming out and speaking the truth about what had been going on. So my prayer for us in our church, in our life, as we work together, as we live together, as we sin, as we repent, as we ask for forgiveness, as we try again, my prayer is that we find a way to continue to constantly welcome everybody to this table. Everyone. We might be the Judas in the midst. We might be sitting next to the one. We might be the ones arguing over who's great. But what we see in Christ is that all are welcome at this table. We say that every single week. This is not our table. It's not my blood. It's not my bread. This is the blood and the bread of Christ right? This is the blood and the body of Christ. And Jesus invites everyone into this covenant, into this contract with him. Now, when Judas made that contract for the money, that was a contract that led to death. But when Jesus makes this covenant with us, it leads to life. And we're invited to continue to have table fellowship with one another and all are welcome at this table. As we say every week, for in the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.